generosity revolution. That's where we've been for the last four years. We're coming to an end, the fourth of four sermons around generosity. Say again. What did I say? <laughs> that's also something you can look, look forward to, a mind that seems to drift unwillingly, uh, unwantingly. Anyway, fourth of four sermons over four weeks. Um, I hope you've enjoyed this series. I, I think being ADD, I don't always latch on to what the series is about. I get individual sermons as opposed to tying whole sermon series together. That's just how I am and how I function. But this series has been deeply challenging to me. Um, and I hope you found the same. I, I confess I've been... I've been drawn into the idea of a generosity revolution in my life. I'm embarrassed to say that parts of my character, and it's become more and more obvious over the last couple of weeks, big parts of my character can be best described by the word stingy. I don't know what word you use to, to carry that idea. Stingy, maybe snoop. You know, snoop. Um, Marzali, I tried to find the Zulu word for this, and it wasn't all that easy, which I quite found quite in, interesting. Ontrishanayo. Is that, how do you say it? Oh, wow. Very different to what I just said. Perfect. Thank you for correcting me. Okay. That word. Um, but whichever word you use, it seems that stinginess has become one of the more acceptable sins of our world. Think about it. No one likes it, but it's not all that serious. I mean, you'll never be arrested or found guilty in a church discipline case because you failed to give someone something to eat, even though your store cupboards at home are full. It's a mildly acceptable practice. But let's be honest just for a moment. Underestimating this tendency of, of stinginess, I think is honestly nothing less than a lie from Satan that we have come to believe. Not only isn't it nice to run into someone whose sole purpose seems to be to grasp and keep the wealth that God has given them, but it cuts deeply into the heart of a Christian character too. It cripples, for instance, for instance, the evangelistic spirit, the desire to share Christ with people out there. I don't know if you can see that, but as long as I'm okay, says the stingy Christian, as long as I'm okay with Jesus, that's the bottom line. It will cut to the heart of serving others or sacrifice for somebody else because it compromises my lot in life. It will twist the love your neighbor teaching into a you must love me teaching. All this to say, if you like me have sat up in recent weeks and wondered how to improve in this area, then I think we must know that it's not a small or insignificant journey that we're on. And I, I really pray that it would last much longer than just four weeks in a series, maybe four years. So our reading for today is from Ruth chapter 4, and uh, 
Listen to what God's Word has to say. Meanwhile, Boaz went to the town gate and sat down there just as the guardian redeemer he had mentioned came along. And Boaz said, come over here, my friend, and sit down. And so he went over and he sat down. Boaz then took ten of the elders of the town and said, come sit here with us. And they did so. And then he said to the guardian redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from Moab, is selling the piece of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. Just that far. Now, if we're going to understand what that fairly obscure passage is about, what these verses are explaining, we'll need to make the adjustment and accept, as we have done a few times over the last couple of weeks, that we're stepping into some deep cultural stuff here. So, so we're at an immediate disadvantage. We're looking at it from, from a different culture, and it unavoidably looks strange to us. But this is how things worked in that day. And hopefully, to help us understand a bit about what Boaz is doing, try and imagine that Boaz is sitting, setting up a little courtroom in these movements so that he can handle the situation with Ruth well. He wants to handle it. He wants to handle it well. He wants to handle it out in the open. He wants to handle it legally. That's what a a man of good character does. He doesn't need to do it backstage or in secrecy in the dead of night or behind closed doors. Instead, he heads off to the town gate, which is where many of the major issues of that community were settled. You can't get more transparent place than the town gate. Everyone is going to know what was decided at the town gate. Then he invites the other main person to join him, the guy that is able to take the situation with Naomi either forward or backwards. In this translation, he's called the guardian redeemer, and he says, come, sit with us. And then he gathers a bunch of more important, bunch of important people, the elders of the town, and basically he was setting up a bunch of witnesses to this transaction that was just about to go down. And then he starts the proceedings. Remember, if you haven't been here in the last four weeks, remember that Boaz wants to marry Ruth. That's what's motivating him down deep. And because he's the kingsman redeemer. Remember the other guy's the guardian redeemer. I'll get to the difference in a second. Because he's the kingsman redeemer, he already has a foot in the door of marrying Ruth. But there's this other guy, the guardian redeemer, that is legally in some ways above him in the pecking order. That's what he's trying to handle here. So the kingsman redeemer, Boaz, is the guy that is delegated in the broad family to look after the family, the, the, the members of the family when someone has passed away. And so the kingsman redeemer looks after the widow and the children of, the, of Elimelech, the person that has passed away. Guardian redeemer is the par- person that's been ne- de- uh, designated in the broad family to look after the properties that have become vulnerable now that that person has pop- passed away. Okay? They don't want to lose that wealth for, to the broader family, so they, they designate a guardian redeemer. And so it was required for Boaz to offer this other bloke the land. But then quite sneakily, he makes it clear that Ruth would be part of the deal if he chooses the land. 
right? So he says in verse 5, On the day you buy the land from Naomi, you'll also require Ruth about Moabites, um, and be, sorry, and the wife of the deceased man to perpetuate the man's name on his property. The guardian guy does the maths in his head as quickly as possible. He's a farmer, he's a businessman, and he's, and he's weighing up the options. Land is always a big plus, particularly in an agricultural community. That's a major plus, but the thought of another wife complicates matters for him. A lot of guys are smiling. That's very rude, eh? But especially this wife. Especially this wife. My guess is that he knew a little bit about Ruth. Not as much as Boaz. Boaz had met with Ruth, spoken to her, connected with her. But this guy hadn't. He, he may have heard all the disqualifying features of Ruth. She was poor. She was foreign. She was needy. And at some level, as he did this maths in his brain, he said, this is just not worth it. Too much energy. I don't know. Too much admin. Too much investment from me. Too much complication. In some way, marrying Ruth, this is where he arrived. In some way, marrying this woman, even if I gained all that land, will compromise my inheritance. Boaz, you go ahead, marry that lady. Take the land, marry that lady. So the Redeemer replied, I can't redeem it myself or I'll ruin my inheritance. Take my right of redemption because I can't redeem it. So naturally, Boaz doesn't need a second invite. Verse 13, Boaz took Ruth. She became his wife. When he was intimate with her, the Lord enabled her to conceive and she gave birth to a son. Incidentally, their son's name was Obed. Obed was the grandfather of King David. He was the great, 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 great grandfather of Jesus. It's not stated in the Bible, but I'm sure after that they lived happily ever after. It's a beautiful little story, this. The kind of story that you can tell your kids. And has the things of God absolutely and almost explicitly um, involved everywhere in the this, in this story. Need to unpack some of the cultural stuff, but it is so rich with God. Here's what I want to push into a little today around those, those passages or that passage of scriptures. It's around the issue of motivation. Motivation is critical. Here's the big question. Why would any of us ever reach out to someone like Ruth, especially if you have a tendency towards stinginess? Why would we ever extend our hand or something of my own towards somebody that is needy? You know, I honestly reckon I could run the comrades in three years' time. Here's the critical thing. I lack any motivation. I absolutely lack motivation. The thought of running early hours or sacrificing many hours just to run a ridiculous race, oh, no, can't get my mind. Zero motivation. Yes, I'll be healthy. That's still not enough motivation. All right? Offer me a million rand and my levels of motivation skyrocket very quickly. Um, I couldn't care less about the running, but jeepers, I'll go out and buy some shoes very quickly if there was a million rand on the, on, on the table. Suddenly I'm intensely motivated. 
And so today I want to spend the major part of this sermon around the question of motivation. What would actually motivate us to reach towards a more generous life, to have this generous revolution in our own lives, to start to mold our character, because that's what's on the line here, to start to remold our values or our outlook on life to reflect a little bit more of this Boaz character. What would do that for us? I mean, I can never change your heart in regard to this. But maybe we can start to change how we think about things. And I want us to turn towards each of those three main characters in our reading for today as the source of what, out of which um, that much-needed motivation can be derived. I think each of them has something to teach us, those three main characters. So starting off with Boaz. Boaz. A lot has said, been said about this guy already. Personally, I would have renamed this book Boaz as opposed to Ruth. That's just my own take on things. He is such a powerful, such a beautiful picture of God. But remember, this isn't just a cute little love story that he's being told. The material that we are reading in the story is also serving the massive story that the expanse of the Bible is telling. It's adding to that mega story. And so it would not be wrong to look at this as something of a gospel story as well, to see something that's adding to the gospel story that the mega picture of Scripture is telling. And an important way, we arrive at it when we recognize that an important way to explain the good news of God is to talk of Him being a redeeming God. He's a redeemer. We're all familiar with that word, but we find the best explanation of that word in this character Boaz. 1 Peter 1 verse 18 to 21 says, Knowing that you are not redeemed, there's that word, not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold, but with the precious blood as of the lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. We are redeemed by the blood of Christ. Boaz is an epic picture of a redeemer. How does the world, let me ask you, how does the world get to know the story or the truths and doctrine of a redeeming God? It's quite an in-house kind of language, isn't it? That's what Christians use, that kind of language. How does the world out there start to get an inkling, a vision of what a redeeming God looks like? Well, the story of a God who at his own expense reaches in and drags us out of our difficulties. Very powerful way to do that is to live a life like Boaz. His life tells that story probably better than any sermon or any argument. His life of generosity preaches powerfully the story of a redeeming God. Boaz was generous to Ruth at every step of the story. He keeps on upgrading his level of generosity from allowing her to stay in his field through the entire harvest to leaving extra for her to glean, as we heard last week, to sharing his lunch and giving her more than she needs to eat and drink. Boaz's generosity is incredible. Did you know when Naomi said, he gave me these, in, I think it's chapter 3, verse 17, he says, he gave me these six measures of barley because he said, don't go back to your mother-in-law empty-handed. They don't actually say what the measures are. But often in that day and age, they use the measure called sea, S-E-A-H, as the measure. If that was the case, if it was six measures or six seers of barley, 
it was probably around, around the, the, the amount of 36 kilograms that he gave her to take her home to, to her family. That's generous. The story of our Redeemer God is told through the actions of a generous people. Here's the motivation that we get from Boaz. The nature of God is exposed, is explained, is pictured, is emphasized, is preached through your generosity. In effect, our God becomes more accessible to our world through your generosity. As I say, I would suggest better than any sermon, any argument can be made. Then we turn to Ruth. Very different kind of motivation that we get from Ruth. And we have to start off by understanding that all of us are represented by Ruth. All of us are the same as Ruth in the story of this book. I suspect our ability to understand this character, this Ruth character, is directly related to the depths of desperation we have reached in our lives. What's the closest you've ever come to being destitute or desperate or empty? I mean, I've lived a largely blessed life. I'm grateful to say that that isn't something I've gone deeply into, maybe for very short periods of time. But there have been times when I felt the pinch of being simply a number. Often that's the closest we get. Just a number. I, 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 was, I remember a couple of years ago, I was in the Dubai airport. <clears throat> Crazy that I've got to go to that kind of venue to describe moments of desperation for me. But did you know that at peak season in the D Dubai airport, there can be up to about 200,000 people in the airport at a moment in time? 200,000 people in an airport. And what happened was that the place had been fogged in. And when I say fogged in, I mean you couldn't see 50 meters, and it obviously was a threat. But electronics, um, unfortunately, even the electronics were compromised by this, in this fog. I don't know if it was as a result of the fog. So yes, 200,000 people all rushing to those desks to reroute their flights because all kinds of flights were delayed. But you have to reroute for it first. So you've got 200,000 people rushing to a limited amount of desks. It was horrific. There were no lines. It was basically a scrum for 200,000 people at different desks the length of this stage was the, the, the distance I had to navigate or Cindy and I had to navigate to get to the front to, to actually rearrange our flight. Okay? took me eight hours. It was pure scrum. So I would walk and I'd nudge that much forward and then another person would like come, and, and come and sneak in front, front of me and some dodgy people were passing passports overhead to get the front jeepers. They got into trouble. It was terrible, and somewhere along the line, all people had to get water passed to them because they couldn't go out or go to the toilet because then they'd lose their space. It was terrible. Somewhere along the line, I realized the, the reason it was so, so horrible is because in that moment, I was just a number. 
dehumanized completely. I was just a number, one amongst thousands of thousands. I had no rank to pull. I couldn't say, listen, pastors first. There's no racial advantage. I mean, the fact that I was South African was probably a disadvantage, if anything. There were no networks of people or connections to join. There's nothing, no way to financially influence the situation. It was utterly dehumanizing. I actually think that's why many of us hate going to home affairs. Because we just become a number. That's what we feel, at least. Look, this is the zone in which Ruth lived. It wasn't a momentary experience. This was the zone in which Ruth lived. She was a Moabite, racially and morally suspect, because Moabite women were renowned for seducing believers to foreign gods. She was single. In that day and age, that was, that was very tough. She was a woman. She was poor. She was homeless. She had nothing going for her. Unless someone reached back to her, she reached out. Unless she found a redeemer, she was in deep, deep trouble. Are we any different? Are we any different? We are equal in our sin. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, says Scripture. The hierarchy of righteousness that some of us believe in at some levels exists only in our minds. When Jesus said those without sin can cast the first stone, he was saying, in effect, we're all on the same page. We are equal in our sin. We are all equally needed. We are all in equal need of God's love and forgiveness. So here's the motivation that we may find in Ruth if we look closely enough. Do unto others as you would them do to you. In our neediness, we need kindness. Be kind. In our loneliness, we hope for companionship. Be friendly. In our weakness, we need encouragement. We need someone to reach out their hand towards us. Be that person. Be encouraging. Why not be something to someone in a way that you would wish they would be to you if you were in their situation? Do unto others as you would they would do unto you. So when we are confronted, as we are so often in South Africa, by the sometimes disturbing levels of neediness around us, let us be ready to return humbly to our own neediness. And understand that, but by God's grace, that's us walking there too. We are equal. We are equal, and the story of Ruth tells us that. Last character that I'm going to pick up on in terms of motivation is Mr. So-and-so. <laughs> so who is this chap that had the first rights to Ruth, the guardian redeemer? Um, chapter 4, verse 1, Boaz called him by name and said, come over here and sit down, and when Boaz summoned the other redeemer, he literally said in the, in, the, in the original text, he said, come over here, Poloni Yalmoni. It sounds cool, eh? Come over here, Poloni Yalmoni. We used to call Joni, Joan Neal in our church, Joni Poloni. 
I didn't realize it came so close. Poloni Yalmomni. It's, it's a rhyming phrase equivalent to our Mr. So-and-so. We never, here's the pertinent fact, we never get to actually know his name. And remember, the whole reason he refused to take Ruth was because he wanted to protect his inheritance. Part and parcel of that is to protect his name. But his concern to protect his name and that of his family ironically causes him to lose the name. And he becomes anonymous for the rest of history. The maths that businessman, that farmer God did in his head didn't serve him well. In the end, it failed him. The truth of the matter is that sometimes we find legitimate motivation in warnings. Here's the warning. Stinginess, in the end, empties our life, diminishes our name and our presence. It is, in fact, better to give than to receive. Despite the apparent wisdom of stockpiling, there will be a cost at some point, a cost that it, certainly if this is anything to go by, a cost that may impact both my life and possibly the lives of our kids. Mr. So-and-so missed the beat at this point in his life. His lack of generosity led him down a path of obscurity and impoverishment, which was what he was trying to work against. I just wonder, and there's nothing in the text to suggest this, but I just wonder if he ever arrived at the later years of his life, was left wondering why he was a lonely old man, bored and isolated. I've known a few genuinely generous people in my life. I'm sure all of us have. John Ben is one of them. I think he's one of the most generous guys I've ever come across. He's willing to give his shirt off his back in an instant. Um, Noel Powell, I don't think Noel is here this morning, he's exactly the same. And I know this, people like them will never be really alone. There will always be people around them loving them. Strange how that works. So generosity revolution. It's a movement from grasping to giving. It's a movement from self to others. It's from stockpiling to sharing, from selfishness to godliness, from receiving to giving. It's being explained that it's not primarily about money, but will be expressed through our finances as well. Rather, it's about our schedules, our gifts, our time, whatever we have in our hands. During the last few weeks, there have been warnings, there have been encouragements and stories and teachings. We have read Scripture, we have teased out godly principles, looked at the lives of some of the heroes of Scripture. Folk, there comes a point where enough has been said and the choice lands squarely in front of us. What will we do about this? Lands in that space between you and a conversation with your God. He's calling it out of us. How will we respond? I'm going to invite us to step into just two or three minutes of silence.
to just give some space to say, God, is there anything in particular that you're calling us towards in this area? Um, there'll be some background music. And in two or three minutes' time, for those that, that feel it's, it's time, you're welcome to leave. I'm not gonna, no one's going to get up here and say, you can, you can duck now. But we want to create just a bit of space for you to connect with the Lord around this generosity revolution and see where He leads you to. If you remember the two big characters, at least now, in, in chapter 4, the Redeemer said, I can't redeem it myself. But Boaz said, I will redeem. That's our longing. That all of us increasingly become like God. We step into that painful zone of saying, I will redeem. It's a zone of blessing. It's a zone that God steps into when he looks at you and I. I'm going to pray. And we're going to have two or three more minutes of silence. And then feel free to linger as long as you want. Just listening to God. It's not silence. Hopefully it's not empty silence. Let's pray together. Our redeeming God, please soften our hearts. Please change our character to reflect you. Please show us the opportunities you want us to note. And in terms of generosity, may we hear your voice and be led by you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.